0: Welcome to Politics in the North, where a couple of recovering policy wonks get together to discuss politics. Okay, so hello again, and today we have the pleasure of speaking with Alex, Atul, Eddie, and Victoria.
1: Hello. Hello. Hello.
0: And today we'll be covering a subset of the topic related to COVID-19, mainly focusing on resiliency. Now, resiliency is really a loaded concept. It probably would be a good starting point for us to kind of define what we're thinking of when we're describing resiliency. Does anyone want to give a stab at it?
2: Sure. I think when I think of resiliency, and I'll allow uh, the rest of the group to, I think, weigh in. I think when I think of resiliency, I think of a system that is able to, I say, uh, be able to withstand different types of shocks. You don't know what type of shocks are going to happen, but at least you have a system in place where you have enough resources, you have enough facilities, you have enough knowledge to be able to address the existing challenge. So similar to what happened in the financial crisis of 2008, there were certain types of policies and regulations put in place to ensure certain types of resiliency that the financial uh, sector did not have such an impact on everyday life and on the economy as well. So when I'm thinking resiliency, especially in terms of COVID, I'm thinking of being able to develop or have in place a healthcare system that is responsive a manufacturing system that is responsive, but then prepared for those kinds of uh, rainy days.
3: I think one thing I would add to that definition, and it's pretty good. I think one of the things that I think about when I think about resilience is also the idea that There is a level of preparation that you try to envision what those future shocks would look like. And there's sort of a a well thought out mobilization of how you would put those resources out there if one of those shocks came to be, how you would sort of strategically position your resources, whether it's manpower or capital. And there is a plan that is somewhat already in place where you can kind of just reach out and say, okay, let's trigger this plan. And this is how it's mobilized. And, you know, based on the situation you have at hand.
1: Yeah. And the only thing I would add too is like, that's all kind of fitting under sort of institutional resiliency, but it's also important to look at social resiliency and individual resiliency. So how individuals are able to deal with these shocks as well, um, outside of work, outside of, you know, being able to go to the store, but just within their homes. like How are people mentally, emotionally, physically able to deal with everything that's going on? And I think that's something that you're seeing being talked about a little bit more is sort of the mental health impact that this is going to have on a lot of people on an individual level.
3: Do do you think there's a huge difference between how, especially sort of in the current context, is there a huge difference between how you think about resiliency and how you think about response? Are they like the same thing? Do they merge pretty well? Or is there a difference between a country that is able to respond really well but may not be extremely resilient?
0: Yeah, I think there, there's a degree of nuance in terms of both the response and resiliency in the sense that it, it's really a fine line of a situation that we're dealing with because of the nature of the virus and its ability to spread exponentially A response may be adequate right now, but a couple of degrees later, your systems may be significantly more challenged than they were before.
3: And I agree there. I think, and that's another thing, like when we think about resilience, sometimes we think about it in a very macro sense, you know, how generally resilient is something, but there are also degrees of comparison there. I mean, you can talk about time frame. Okay. Some, a system can be resilient over the short sort of medium frame, but over the long period of time, the more you mobilize those resources, there is a level of, you know, fatigue associated with individuals and capital. And that can also impact the idea of how you think about resilience.
1: Right, and that also can change your response too, right? Like, I know even from the very beginning when public health officials were talking about the fact that we would have to go on these really extreme lockdowns and have sort of self-distancing and self-isolation measures, they knew that people could only sort of deal with that in the extreme for so long. And then at some point, they were going to have to change the response because people's resiliency was only going to last for so long, right? Like, we've been a month into this now, and you already see, obviously, it's a small portion of the population in the U.S., but you see people who are already protesting the stay-at-home orders for a variety of different reasons. But you do see people who are starting to have fatigue with everything that we're being sort of asked to do by public health officials. So the response will most likely have to change based on that.
0: I think that's an interesting starting point to further discussion is, given that we're using a fairly blunt tool to deal with the situation, where do countries go next in terms of their response? Because quite frankly, social distancing, physical distancing has been effective at blunting the total number of cases for the sole purpose of, again, not overwhelming the the systems that we have in place. But then as things start to chafe, as people start to push back against it, what does that look like? What's a more feasible strategy moving forward?
4: I think it's definitely going to be gradual. And this um, this could be quite interesting in a way because so far we've had to jump to the most extreme option, which is just uh, complete physical distancing, shutting down all non-essential businesses in most places. As we relax some of those, we'll be able to tell perhaps which shutdowns are more effective than others, which types of businesses or social gatherings could be more conducive to spreading COVID than others. So I think that could emerge uh, as this is drawn back. I think though, regardless, it's going to be a gradual process whereby small numbers of people at a time are led into businesses that are non-essential and those types of moves. But I think in terms of Large public gatherings, a lot of transportation networks, certainly aviation, those things are going to be quite slow to, to recover.
2: Chris, to your point, I think with regards to response, this is a very, very interesting aspect to it because I think this week was very interesting, especially in Canada, where you had a few intelligence officials say that there's a certain type of way in which there had been suggestions to have more, say, intelligence with regards to these types of pandemics as well. And because we hadn't had a pandemic in a long time, of course, the funding or the significance of it is then not considered as priority. Priority then becomes just like the issues for the government of the day, the economy and what have you. But I think moving forward, I think we have to have like, of course, as Alex said, those staggered approaches. I think in the long term, in terms of, response and resilience aspect i think there has to be a little bit much more focus on terms of how are we monitoring for these types of say viruses or illnesses that are happening around the world what type of say uh, funding should be put into it on an on on an annual basis and how can you help with the cooperation globally to ensure that if something that, like this happens say in one part of the world the world is able to mobilize and be able to prevent its spread from having such an impact and also because the social distancing is such an archaic, it's a much very, it's a, it's a process that's been used over and over again in the past. I think we have to at least also move on from that kind of approach to something more proactive, as opposed to reactive.
4: Interesting thing in this case is that the disease was detected fairly early. If we're if we're looking at COVID, there were there were warning signs about it as early as well. As The the hint is in the name COVID-19. This was uh, first examined in late 2019 in December, potentially even late November. Certainly it was brought to leaders' attention around the world, particularly in the U.S. At the latest in early January of this year, I think beyond simply funding and detection, it has to do with the institutional will to deal with these things early and to perhaps take steps which could be unpopular short of social distancing, but which could be effective at stemming the virus in the short term while there's still time. And that, I think, really depends on people understanding the threat and taking it seriously, even when there are maybe only a handful of cases and we don't necessarily know very much
3: about it. Um, I will note that we've done, I mean, at least with this instance of pathogen. We've done better than in the past. I mean, as far as if you look at the timeline, from what I understand, the first cases that, you know, came to the hospitals in Wuhan was around December 25th. And by December 31st, the Chinese government had already sequenced the genome for it. From what I understand, by January 5th, they publicized the fact that they did. And I think by the 10th, they made it sort of internationally available, whatever the genetic code or structure of the virus was. And by sort of making it public and putting it out there on the web, scientists all over the world were already able to start working with, you know, the protein structure or whatever the biological components of the disease was. So there is sort of pluses and minuses there. I think the issue to note here is even when you talk about response and, you know, public uh, making, you know, whatever information you have about the virus public, there are degrees over there as well. Even though they made the code public by, you know, the 10th of January, they, the WHO wasn't allowed to enter and, examined the situation until the first week of February, and they were prevented from doing so the, the entire month of January. And then on the 28th, the leader of the WHO had a closed door meeting with Xi Jinping. So in this sense, I think it's important to know that, yes, the response can happen in steps, but there are some steps that are more important than others. And there are some steps that are more impactful, not only on a national level, but on a global level as well. And it's important to prioritize how those different steps take place and making sure that that kind of uh, action is done efficiently.
0: Do you think there may be a potential in terms of overcorrecting preparation for say the next pandemic in the sense that, so right now COVID-19 is very much top of mind, but within the context of diseases, we haven't seen something like this in one century. So with that framing, if governments begin to more actively put funds towards certain measures more targeted towards this particular type of crisis, would there stand a risk of overemphasis on something that may or may not be a factor as consistently as we think it would be?
2: I, I think so. Um, I think in any kind of situation, like as in the like governments are run by people. And as people, we tend to only focus on issues that are very important or things that have happened. And to plan for a future event is very difficult. I think that is most likely to happen. I think they'll beef up the healthcare systems and that will be priority. But I think, at least in my view, from where I look at it, I don't think the next issue will be, say, a pandemic, but I think it may also be like a climate change related issue down the line, right? We saw in Australia with the bushfires that extended for months, that was the first of many yet to come, right? So I think that if governments are public actors are supposed to look at this as a particular first step, They should look at it not just as, oh, let's prepare for a pandemic, but let's prepare for something even bigger. And how do we get the population, the infrastructure ready for that? And I'm also thinking about not only for those in advanced countries, but also in developing countries, like what kind of conversations need to be happening with regards to that.
1: Yeah. And I would be curious to know actually how often, and you're right to say that there hasn't been this level of a pandemic since the spanish flu for example but we have seen outbreaks of novel diseases like mers, sars, h1n1, swine flu, bird flu and most of those have happened within the last decade so i think there is something to be said about and i would have to look into this more but i think there has been these outbreaks that are happening more often and that actually goes back to at least from what i've been hearing from people who are studying these outbreaks is that it does come back to issues related to climate change and how we're sort of as humans encroaching on the natural habitats of different animals. So there's increased likelihood of viruses and diseases going from the animals into us. So that's maybe why we're seeing this sort of increase in these um, new viruses. So I don't know if it's, a, I don't think it's possible to have an overcorrection. And as you were kind of saying, Eddie, like beefing up, for example, if we were to beef up our healthcare system at least the international system around healthcare, which who knows what's gonna happen to the WHO after this. Mm -hmm. I don't think that would be an overcorrection because we do see a lot of health impacts of climate change, Mm -hmm. right? Like all those fires that are happening, were happening in Brazil and Australia, those have health impacts as well. So I, I don't think in this particular case, it would be an overcorrection. I think it's possible that we'll do it wrong again, that we won't beef up what we need to be beefing up, right? Like we will still have some mistakes and not really learn the lessons we need to learn. But I think it's really important that people start looking at issues related to healthcare. And if it's going to be able to pump more money into it, if we look at it from a security perspective, because you know we love to put money into issues related to security, like the military. Mm-hmm maybe we should be doing that with healthcare as well.
3: I think from the standpoint of overcorrection, though, there, I think there's overcorrection from a policy sense, which is hard policies that might overreach. But I think another part of it is also perception. Uh, when you look at the WHO and their response, what they did with SARS, they were commended. They did very well. They responded pretty early. They were well-resourced. Uh, they were able to put pressure on nations to release data so that everyone was on the same page. But over the years, as they you know, were underfunded and their responses to other diseases that came out later, for example, H1N1 wasn't as Mm -hmm. well done, uh, even though they responded early. And even though they took a lot of early measures to mitigate whatever worse damage might have happened later on, they got a lot of flack for it. They were actually ridiculed for, uh, you know, overreaching and maybe inflating the the threat of Mm -hmm. the virus itself. And in that sense, I think when you're talking about overcorrection, there's also a necessity to balance public perceptions versus versus the policies that you want to implement on the ground and how you want to implement those policies. Because it is very important to have the public on your side as well, either in terms of information or just approving or supporting what it is you're trying to do.
1: Right. I think it's really hard to get it right, though, because... I think it was Dr. Fauci from the States that said he would prefer people say he overreacted than underreacted. Because if you don't have a really bad outbreak and really high death numbers, everyone's like, oh, we totally overreacted to that. But then if you don't do enough, everyone says you underreacted. So it's such exactly. a hard balance.
0: In terms of the WHO in particular, though, I think it's going to be an interesting case to look back at once we have a, a bit more distance from us between now. The current events that we're seeing in terms of how the organizational structure was ineffective in certain ways and effective in others, because for sure there's tons of lessons to be learned. Again, we're a bit too close to the the actual emergency and crisis to be able to fully digest it as of yet.
2: Yeah, and I think if if we're being honest about, like, say, even the topic of resiliency, I think we need a very strong strong centers of excellence with regards to healthcare, similar to how we have in other sectors. But also the discussion on, say, health has to be, should be at least elevated because it comes up here and there, but it's sometimes left to, say, the peripheries to, like, say, the NGOs or it's less to the private sector. And yet a lot of the discussions or a lot of focus tends to be either on the markets, tends to be on economic development. But I think healthcare should also be, like, one of those criteria that we should also be looking at. As well, not only is like how much money is a country making, but also like how healthy are the people, right? Like how are they able to combat combat different diseases and viruses at the same time? I think there has to be some kind of like international response to help elevate the discussion and make it more mainstream as opposed to like moving it to the periphery and pushing it only into the mainstream only when it matters uh, during these types of crises.
0: A hundred percent. I think the big thing that this crisis has demonstrated is that a lot of the cleavages and inequalities that we Mm -hmm. see in a day-to-day just come Mm -hmm. so much more further to the forefront like case in point in terms of the mortality rates Mm -hmm. the degree of comorbidity and relation to economic class social class all of these cleavages are coming out at play in terms of the data Mm -hmm. that you're seeing with who's being hardest hit and Mm -hmm. what communities are being impacted most
3: the narrative or the rhetoric around that is actually pretty funny because a lot of the times you have uh, some politicians or you know celebrities or whoever it is they come out and say well this is further proof that COVID doesn't discriminate between you know social classes because it goes after people regardless of you know how much money you made. but the the truth is that your stature in society makes has a huge difference on the quality of health care you receive depending on the country that you're living in already uh, as well so.
4: Not just the quality of healthcare you receive but also the sorts of uh, preconditions yeah. that you have if you are to get COVID on top of that so most prominently in the United States now, it's coming out that people who are obese are disproportionately at risk of of intubation or of of death from COVID. And that's a condition which uh, affects largely lower income people in the country. So it's not only access to healthcare, but to the other risk factors that you face as a member of whichever social class.
1: Yeah. And I wonder if it also has something to do with the fact that we have been very blessed in that in our lifetime, at least, there are vaccinations to a lot of the diseases that plagued large parts of the world for a very long time, right? So mm-hmm. like polio, measles, um, even the, the regular flu, mm-hmm. there weren't vaccines to those things, as, at least in the sort of OECD countries, and now more so in uh, developing economies. So f- people have sort of gotten, like we don't see disease and virus and death. It's not in our faces all the time. So for the most part, people just don't think about it. And I think mm-hmm. this has been one of the instances where I pretty much every single person knows somebody or has heard of yeah. somebody that's gotten sick from COVID or has died from COVID. And I yeah. can't say in my life that I've ever experienced that before. And that's made me think, more about healthcare than i personally ever thought about healthcare um but if you talk to like my grandma she'll tell me about back when she was growing up people used to be like quarantined in their houses all the time because their kids had measles or some other disease that the vaccine wasn't readily available yet so for her it was so normal that like one day that kid in her class just all of a sudden disappeared because he died from measles or he died from polio and that was just something they it was like in their face all the time. So people thought about health a lot. So I don't know if that's that's kind of part of it too, that now that this has sort of been thrust into our psyche again, if we'll start to take healthcare more seriously and and in a place like the US, maybe people will start to see healthcare as more of a, of a human right than just something people who have money are able to get.
3: That's a good point, Victoria. Although I, I would add that You know since i don't know the 1950s and 60s with like technology and globalization and just the level of air travel that's going on now even if it's not in our face to the same extent anytime there is a new sort of outbreak or a pandemic potential event it moves very very quickly as we've seen in the last what two and a half months where Mm. where we've gone economically where we've gone as a society where we've gone politically the the because of where we are today in the 21st century all those impacts are amplified over a very very short period of time
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and a question to the group is that are we so in the u.s you have um you don't have like a public health care system and it's all dependent on the insurance whereas in some other countries say germany canada you do have that kind of public health care system and also the uk
1: well we do have we do have medicare and medicaid but they're not the same yeah
2: yeah. So do you think having more of like, say, a public healthcare system where you put money into is part of those other aspects of resiliency where we're able to build into it as well, where people pay to it as opposed to just like insurance? Because you're seeing in Germany as to how they're tackling it. But I just wanted to get the views from the group as to whether there's a remarkable difference between having the two sets of systems in order to tackle these types of issues.
1: Yeah, I I definitely think so. And I I know at least from the US, like uh, one of my friends is a doctor in Brooklyn and she was talking about how because the healthcare, the hospitals are private, they were having a really hard time moving patients from one overcrowded hospital to a hospital that had more beds because Mm -hmm. their data systems weren't able to talk to each other. So it was Mm -hmm. difficult for them to transfer The health data and the records of this one patient to the other hospital because they're both private and they're using their own systems. So there's like there's sort of this like system problem, this logistical issue, but then there's also like the social issues. So a lot of people, if they're not able to be covered by Medicare or Medicaid and they don't have health care through their employer, they don't have health care. Like there were periods in my life before I came to Canada that I didn't have health care at all because I was in school and I couldn't afford it and I didn't have a job that gave me health care. So I just never went to the doctor. Like I would get sick and I just wouldn't go because I knew I couldn't afford it. So there are people who like will not go to the doctor because they Think they're going to be charged two thousand dollars just for walking through the door? So people might be sick and might be getting COVID symptoms, but are afraid to actually go to the hospital because they're afraid of what the cost might be. Whereas, you know, in Canada and the UK, I don't think that's as much a concern. So I think that it does have an impact on resiliency.
3: It is interesting that we, we, we are talking about healthcare because if you looked at the countries around the world and the type of different healthcare systems they have and how much they spend, obviously like one of the things you're looking at looking at is absolute spending, which doesn't necessarily say much about how well those resources are allocated. For example, the United States spends a huge deal of money on healthcare, but does you don't get the uh-huh. same results that you would say in Germany, for example. At the same time, I think one of the things that came to my mind was, historically, Italy has been known to have an excellent healthcare system, universal healthcare, broad-based access to it in terms of you know cancer and a whole lot of other diseases. But we see that the way that this particular pathogen has impacted their healthcare system has, hasn't, has you know, it's, if you can't say that just because you have, you know, basic, universal basic healthcare, that you have a systemic or strong response to the virus.
1: Right. I think that the main issue with Italy, though, was the particular demographic because yep. even the region where it hit has like one of the most well-funded healthcare systems in the entire country but because it was it's also has a lot of older people living in that area it just completely overwhelmed the system but you're totally right like i'd be really interested to see how different universal healthcare systems compare sort of once this is all over and we had talked about in the last podcast how the NHS was already like struggling And even the Canadian healthcare system, like in Ontario, there was tons of conversations going on about what they call it, like hallway care or something where they just didn't have enough beds and people were having to stay in the hallway. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. And there's one other point that I, Like to get your thoughts on too is part of the issue as well trust because for for systems to work effectively and for people to respond to the responses and to cooperate there has to be a certain amount of trust between the citizenry and the institutions right Mm -hmm. and when you talked about low lower income sort of rural areas in the states I know from experience that most people do not trust the doctors and the hospitals in those Mm -hmm. areas. And and there's some good reason they tend to not be that great because they're poorly funded. But there is this like sense in the US, especially that constantly the doctors are just trying to push medicines on you because the pharmaceutical companies, they get money from them. And it's just this whole institution that's just wants to get money from people and doesn't actually care about people's health.
4: Yeah. Well, in the US, in certain places, at least that isn't necessarily untrue. But I think More broadly, trust in institutions is the cornerstone of institutional resiliency in a lot of ways, and I find it really concerning that in in the States, and in particular, we're starting to see protests against social distancing measures, and you you simply don't see that in other places where you have more trust in government. To yeah. go off
0: that point, I think it's interesting to see that right now you're having these kind of two counter rates. Right before we had this COVID-19 crisis, all of the rage in political science was the populist wave. Populism mm-hmm. is sweeping Western democracies left, right and center. And you have these movements that are being very anti-intellectual, anti centers of influence, very anti-institutions. I'm curious, and uh, as a final note for everyone to to kind of give their take in terms of how they imagine these two very different factions essentially interacting moving forward once we're kind of going through this crisis.
2: I think what COVID has done, I think from a political standpoint, but then from a societal one as well, is like it's helped shift the pendulum from one extreme and least into the center. And where you're seeing, I think this comes back to the uh, topic of trust, where you're seeing very effective responses, where you're seeing the decline in rates, is where you have people willing to listen to the government, but then also willing to their health experts, right? They are relying on the health experts to help provide them with that key critical information and seeing the value of it, especially in Canada. You don't see politicians having presentations about all the achievements they've done to date with February missing. They (laughs) have actually deferred to health experts to provide their take. They only provide like up to date as to what's going to happen in the country, but there's a lot of deference for health expertise and understanding what we're supposed to do as a society, what we can do next as well. So I think in driving the conversation, I think that populist wave has been put on standstill and then a return to normalcy where you have a lot more expertise and much more policy that's going to help people as well, especially after this, where you're going to see a lot of economic trouble and a lot of people trying to make sense of their new world. You're going to need people with that actually delivering policy and less on just talk.
1: I'm going to take a slightly more uh, pessimistic view. And Eddie, I think what you said is possible and I hope it happens, but I think it will all depend on how long the economic fallout from this lasts. I think if there's, if, if the economic fallout lasts much longer than hopefully they're anticipating. I think people, because we all sort of have like short term memory, right? Like Mm -hmm. once the virus sort of starts to dissipate a little bit and people aren't as concerned and the rates are going down and everything's going down, but the economic impact is still increasing or people start to feel it more, they're going to sort of forget what we just went through over the past couple of months. And you've seen this happen over and over and over again. And then I worry that we're going to just see the same sort of quote unquote populist wave that we've been seeing for the last couple of years because there's so many underlying sy- systemic issues that aren't going to be fixed like they're still they still exist and if anything they're just going to be amplified i don't know like if i think if the ec- if the economy rebounds fast mm-hmm. and if some of these things that are being done like giving people more benefit helping them out by giving them checks or better health care if those things continue then maybe what I'm saying won't happen and what you're saying will happen. But I, I just don't know. I think it's just too early to tell.
4: Yeah, I would uh, I would agree with Victoria on that a lot. I think the more immediate health concern to, in, in places where populists are in power and have dealt with this at least somewhat competently, so we're leaving out the, Uni- the United States in that regard, but in other places, I think this could actually help them because this kind of crisis as long as the response is decent, tends to help the incumbent. With the longer term economic situation, I think it will be much tougher. Although the crisis that comes economically will be very different from the one that happened in 2008-2009, which sort of in a lot of ways spawned the current populist wave. Mm -hmm. So the the response this time could be quite different from voters, um, just because of the nature of the crisis. But I, I agree, it is too early to say what will happen. But certainly we um, we can't write off the continued strength of, uh, of uh, populist politics, or a swing from the populist right to the populist left, but continued weakness in the center.
3: When I think about sort of populism and anti-institution, anti-institutional behavior, and even sort of the idea of social capital, there is a lot of nuance there. I think there's going to be differences between internal reactions and external reactions. And you're seeing that that there's also a lot of variation from region to region. I mean, for example, if you look at the United States now, you're seeing a lot of articles and pieces going on about the end of small government now, you know, with all these bailouts or with all this money being injected, government money or taxpayer money being injected into the system. Uh, at the same time, when you look at the European Union, you see that there's a lot of differences between north and south perceptions. You see Denmark isn't agreeing with the EU's plan to, you know, for Corona bonds to help Italy, Greece, and few other economies that are having to deal with this uh, or not dealing with it as well as uh, some of the northern economies. And at the same time, if you look at more on sort of the Asian continent, you see that when you look at South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Singapore, you see that there are quite a few countries that have done well that do enjoy high levels of social capital. So yes, it doesn't necessarily mean that it'll be the end of, um, you know, populism, or it might even exacerbate populist sentiment. But there's going to be a lot of variations from country to country of what that looks like, depending on outcomes for those separate regions.
0: Very true. And I think that's the perfect way to wrap up this conversation on resiliency.